You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the first of tonight's two events and the final day of our program celebrating literature from Southern Africa. In all of Africa, speculative fiction, especially science fiction, is on the rise. And just like in Norwegian literature, where science fiction elements are finding their way into even some of the most popular authors, so are South African voices using science fiction to tell new stories and shine a light on the new politics of their time. I've always found science fiction to be a form that's irrevocably linked to critiques of power and societal structures, tonight's speaker Masande Nchanga has said. During his adolescence, he read a lot of science fiction, and his latest novel, Triangulum, makes use of several elements from the genre. In this personal lecture, Nchanga will talk about what science fiction literature has meant to him as a reader and writer, and about the significance of the genre for writers who want to imagine another world. What makes science fiction the preferred genre for some to pick apart contemporary power structures? And what can such writing do for South Africa? Masande Njanga is a South African writer, poet, and editor of New Contrast magazine. For his debut novel, The Reactive, he was awarded the Betty Trask Award, while his second novel, Triangulum, was nominated for the Ilube Nomo Prize, which celebrates the best speculative fiction by Africans. So please lend a hand in welcoming to the stage Masande Nchanga. Thank you, Daniel. And thank you, everyone, for attending. I really appreciate it. And tonight, I'll be delivering the lecture and also um, reading excerpts from my second novel, Triangulum, as well as um, Native Life in the Third Millennium, which is a chapbook that is published from my own experimental press that I established in 2020. I would like to start by saying that when I began writing my second novel, Triangulum, um, a speculative work that also interacts with historical fiction, the mystery genre, coming of age, and even the spy thriller, mixing science fiction with philosophy and South African history, not only making references to the Siskai homeland, or the Bantistan, but also to video games that I loved as a child, such as The Legend of Zelda, Link's Awakening, and Final Fantasy VII, where I first encountered um, eco-terrorism, actually. Um, this is all to say that I didn't know that it would lead me down a path that would have me standing here um, before you in Oslo, Norway. To me, it was uh, an idiosyncratic project, somewhat eccentric, and not only meant to reintroduce imagination and play back into my work as um, a realist writer, someone who'd written a novel, um, a debut novel, 
that was regarded by many critics as quite harrowing because of its um, subject matter, even though they praised the language. Um, and it was a difficult book to write. And I was interested in the idea of reintroducing um, fun back into my process. Um, this idea of fun as well was something that was juxtaposed with an understanding that I wanted to write about a little explored part of South African history, which are the homelands of the, the Bantustan system. And it was a painful part of my background as well. And so it made sense for me to kind of encroach it with this playful, imaginative aspect of science fiction, um, alongside how difficult the material was, you know, um, reliving not only the atrocities of what would essentially end up as the Bishop Massacre, but also um, coming to terms um, with the conspiracy of silence in the community, you know, and the shame of people who had no choice but to collaborate uh, with the apartheid regime as um, civil servants in the homelands. <coughs> so, in a way, the project my second novel, Triangulum, was to reckon with this painful past that had hemmed in my childhood um, in the late 80s and early 90s. So that it has found resonance in a country as far as yours um, is not only something that I'm grateful for, but something that also reinforces this idea that um, those of us in the global south, you know, in the underdeveloped world, as it were, are indeed encroaching on, or perhaps even living in the dystopia that our current uh, world order lives in fear of. I want you to take, for example, my creative writing students who work from the most impoverished province in the country and routinely have to miss class because there's no electricity or water or this other student that I had from Nairobi, who taught me that while industry leaders were jetting around the world to attend conferences on global warming, in Kenya, more and more girls were being withdrawn from school, denied an education in order to travel farther and farther to draw water for their families. She spoke of how this phenomenon was changing the social fabric of those communities for the worst and would have repercussions for generations going forward. Indeed, in our class, climate casualties were not a speculation or a terrifying feature for the future, but instead a present feature of realism. In fact, as I've engaged more with science fiction or speculative fiction, I've come to the realization that dystopia, one of its most predominant tropes, cannot only be found in our past in terms of how colonization, an alien invasion of a kind in itself, led to an experimental, scientific, 
system of technocratic oppression, such as apartheid, where the human being was reconfigured from what we knew as natives as umdu, or a person, into a unit of labor. Dystopia also exists in our present, where two years ago in Durban, a warehouse belonging to UPL, an Indian-based chemical company, experienced a malfunction that led to a fireball exploding through the ceiling. This warehouse held millions of liters of insecticides and crop solution products far above the legal limit, which rained down on the surrounding land and bodies of water. Not only was this 400 meters away from a school, but it was also upstream from an informal settlement, a squatter camp, which is a common feature in South African houses, where the country's most vulnerable and poor exist in congested shacks made out of corrugated zinc. Dystopian, too, in how these boxes have the appearance of a rusting circuit board when viewed from above. There is also dystopia in regards to our future, where we have a billionaire elite that, along with an increasingly conservative government, um, lobbies to lessen regulations in order to mine uranium, for example, or introduce fracking to the vast basin of natural gas underneath the Karoo, which would leave further damage for generations to come. This is all to say that these dystopian scenarios, which easily find a home in science fiction, are not only realities where I come from, but are also what I've inherited as a writer. To engage with dystopia, to engage with science fiction, is indeed to engage not only with the playfulness of my imagination, but also the pain of my past, the strain of my present, and the precarity of my future. In short, it is to be a writer. For example, I was born into the Siskai homeland, a collapsing technology of conquest. This was in 1986, during South Africa's state of emergency. And the first part of my childhood would begin here, and then go through the interregnum of the late 80s and early 90s, the agonizingly slow transition from Nelson Mandela's release from prison to our first democratic elections in 1994, during which time the country saw a high spike in politically motivated violence. The homelands of Bantistan's were a divide and conquer technology implemented by the apartheid government in the mid 20th century. Millions of South Africans were relocated, often from their ancestral homes, 
from what was then regarded as white South Africa and sent to labor reserves, areas designated as homelands and Bantistans, a system of segregation structured along ethnic lines, which till this day um, has cultivated tension between groups. Or what the apartheid government regarded as tribal identities. These were touted as independent black states meant to foster separate but equal development between the races. In reality, they had no real functioning economies. They were based on racist policy, they lacked resources, and were denied the same rights as the white population. The town I teach in still carries the legacies of this policy. For example, and because I find such thin distinction between fiction and nonfiction, the speculative and the real, I would like to hand over now to a character from my, from my third book, Native Life in the Third Millennium, which is also um, a mixture of the real and the uncanny and the blending of genres. This character works in a town similar to the town where I teach. Um, he's also a writer. And these are some of um, this character's remarks as far as how they experience um, the legacy of the homelands. <clears throat> Luvo and I were colleagues at a university in the Eastern Cape, stationed in a small town downstream from a dead dam. This was during the tenure of a senior official who'd funneled a fortune's worth of donations into a private bank account, splitting it between members of staff. The funds were meant to build a new library wing, but the heist had invited the press onto our campus which is how Luvo and I met Leletu. There'd been a meeting in which the senior official's name hadn't been mentioned, but instead, we'd all been coerced into a plan of tactical evasion. It wasn't uncommon. Our dean had a daughter at the hospital with a failing lung, and she had been implicated in a scheme before. Most of us had seen the inside of her house. I had a lecture, two tutorials, and the third of a seminar on Mabojo Percy More to write. Then I drove to meet Luvo at one of the two bottle stores we had in town, next to the butchers, and parked across a forecourt that was thinning to dust. From behind the wheel, all the buildings looked half-built. The disrepair wasn't pronounced as much as it was a feature of the region connecting the buildings on the campus to hospitals and schools. It was a town of several thousand, built against the bank of an endangered river, with a single road marking the CBD. During apartheid, the province had been divided into two homelands, both of which had formed part of a larger mass spread across the republic 
meant to accommodate native men, women, and children, cramming 75% of the population into 13% of the land. Under-industrialized and overpopulated, the homelands were quick to give in to poverty and environmental degradation, both of which would persist far into the future. I got out of the car and looked for Louvre. Factories stood abandoned on the horizon, their windows shattered. Men lined the street corners, shaded under trees, waiting for work as women hawked wares on cardboard tables, seated on plastic beer crates, taking cover under awnings and faded parasols. In between them, children returned from school holding hands, dressed in sun-washed uniforms, relieved to be released from the confines of crammed and collapsing classrooms. The survivors of the homelands were now at the helm of our government, manning a machine built to concentrate power in the hands of the few. And their performance at it was dismal, Louvo said, reeling from the trauma of colonial contact, which was now manifest in them as fear and avarice. In the previous month, a municipal manager had been arrested, slithering out in full view of us townsfolk. The man had been tasked with surfacing the roads, but instead had hired associates, charged an additional million, and left the work undone. The 10 million rand allocated to the budget was declared lost, leaving the area as it was. Luvo stood over the dust, waving his arms at me. There were children bouncing on a worn tire next to him, laughing. And because the homelands also still had to accommodate children like myself, my mother, a single parent who had a vested interest in keeping me indoors as the political violence outside of our house was peaking, eventually caved to my nagging and bought me a bootleg Nintendo, a mass-produced Chinese version of the Famicom in order to keep me away from the streets. In a way, this was my first really intimate introduction to narrative. And my friend and I used to spend hours on these machines, even though they were titled in Japanese, which we didn't understand. And in a way, I think this juxtaposition of imaginative play at home and the violent and almost dystopian realities that surrounded us is how I myself would later approach speculative fiction. Again, to refer to my book, um, there's a character here who shares a similar upbringing, who I think um, goes a long way in describing how I myself um, look back on how I grew up during those times. And I will hand over to them again.
ever since we were children, growing up in the sky, we'd both nursed a libidinal hunger for machines, our first love being circuit boards. Pixels were intoxicants. Existence felt like a cage, and gaming was an implement that clawed us out. It strengthened how we imagined. Days after playing through a cartridge on our bootleg Nintendos, we'd still be deconstructing its plot lines and elaborating on the fates that had befallen its cast. Homeland geeks. We were both born at the end of the 20th century, in 1986, the year of Chernobyl, months before P.W. Porter declared a nationwide state of emergency detaining a thousand protesters in an attempt to push back the liberation of our parents. In the aftermath, lathered in petroleum jelly and dressed in discount store bibs that caught teaspoons of our milk and sorghum porridge, we grew up in the ashes of a thwarted revolution, scheduled first to be scolded inside the cruel experiment of assimilation. Mother raised, and father deserted, we shared an alliance of absence. Inward, we were kicked and shoved for being too tender amongst our own. And in a silent pact, we agreed to compete, to treat our schoolwork like a video game and establish a high score for it, staving off boredom and distracting ourselves from the torments that arrived at the hands of our peers. Then we'd fill the rest of our time with AC adapters, RF cords, and game cartridges. Much like this character, the speculative, the speculative, speculative <laughs> and my, um, entered my life as a way of um, seeking refuge as a child. And it was only much later, as I grew as a writer, that I would return to it and realize that not only could it be a refuge, but it could also operate as a weapon, as a form of resistance. In his book, Capitalist Realism, Mark Fisher writes that it is easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Even though this quote captivated me during the writing of my second novel, which speculates and elaborates on the harm of late-stage capitalism in South Africa, making an educated guess, I like to believe, about its trajectory all the way up to the year 2035 and beyond. I've since written myself outside of the hold of the statement. To me, as a South African, it is now as easy to imagine the end of the world as the end of capitalism, actually. I've come to believe that they are one and the same, meaning capitalism, the dominant order and the logical conclusion of our hierarchical civilization which is how we imagine the world, has to end, which means the world itself has to end. And this, for me, is what is most vital 
about speculative fiction in that you are able to speculate and write about ways in which the world could end in order to spare the planet. This is especially the case in the hands of an African writer, I believe. And in this sense, there are multiple ways in order to do this. The first is questioning, to begin with questioning. As I wrote my second novel, one of the primary questions that arose was whether or not I knew, if I were to be asked, how humankind should proceed. And for this interrogation, I created two groups who had a similar end in sight, but very different approaches. The one group was called the tank, and the other group was called the returners. The returners are anti-technology. They believe that the industrial revolution was a grave mistake for humankind. They believe in divesting from society as it is, and that the only way out is to return to a life that is rural, but not only that, but one that precedes even agriculture and livestock farming. The tank, on the other hand, are a group of hackers who believe in infiltrating and subverting the system from the inside. And as I was thinking about this, I thought about the, the, the things that these groups had in common and how they also differed. And if I were to put them in a group together, what kind of conversation um, would emerge? And this is part of what I appreciate about speculative fiction. And you'll see later, um, when I draw up a philosophical parallel to this problem, that you're able to dramatize um, or illustrate certain ideas through a dramatic uh, incident. In this part of the novel, our narrator is being courted by this group, the tank, and has joined them in their headquarters, more as an observer, if anything. The room was located below ground. It felt like it, too, from the heat. It was divided into three sections, shaped like a gel capsule and with a curved ceiling. It was awash in an amber light that blended with the blue tint of computer screens, which were present in numbers, each unit plugged into a workstation built against the wall. Mark led me to a break room at the rear, where four of his people had gathered. He was curt with them. He introduced me as a covert agent, explaining that personal inquiries about me were not permitted. They nodded. 
It was not an unfamiliar ritual. I decided to return the favor. I didn't ask for a name if none was offered, and I didn't initiate conversation either. Instead, for the next half hour, we drank and spoke around a steel table, as solemn as generals frowning over battle plans. I couldn't follow most of the conversation, but I retained what I could. For example, I learned that the tank got its name from this bunker we were standing in, where it was founded. It was a cell of converts. Two were former data brokers. One was a cybersecurity specialist, and the fourth, a man with a thick black mustache, introduced himself as a legal consultant. The rest, equal numbers, male and female, were black hat hackers, hunched anonymously over the over workstations outside the break room. Each had defected from a different cell in order to follow Mark's cause. As the night wore on, I suspected they'd retained all the motives too. The bunker doubled up as the base of a state-sponsored hacker cell. I learned a new initiative from the Department of Just of Defense, a gray site still in its beta phase, and run by Mark. He'd offered each hacker in the team a chance to work in the open, to breathe at long last with expunged records and altered identities, and then he recruited them along with their gratitude from the government cell and into the tank. He kept the same address. He made use of the same resources. I watched him command the table. Here's the thing, he said. There's no salvation in regression. That's the pattern of evolution. It's unidirectional. He was speaking to one of the former data brokers. The man had asked him about the possibility of working with a new eco-terrorist group in Cape Town, environmentalists with anti-tech leanings, if there might be strength in numbers. Mark frowned, wanting to brush the question off. Here's what I mean. He took a long breath. Fine, let's put an end to information. Humankind now has to find a new organize, organizing principle. Am I right? The data set would remain the same. That's what would be at our disposal. The cumulative knowledge of humankind's past and projected future, which is what we have now. That would be the foundation of whatever new world we wanted to build. To advance, we have to build on more than the ruins required by a retreat from technology. To stamp on the heads of the powerful, we have to climb their cages and turn them into scaffolds. There was a chair around the table, but I couldn't help but cut in. I'm not too sure. I said, for instance, what if one applies a novelist's perspective? Take drafting. There, a text gains refinement with each iteration, but the author must still be willing, first and foremost, to destroy all that's before her for a do-over, if that is what is required. And that willingness is paramount, and without it, there's a limit on how much a draft improves. Mark nodded. I like that. For a moment, he sounded like he might even mean it. I do, but in the end, the trouble lies in our bodies, doesn't it?
the human mind has advanced far ahead of its vessel, its source of energy. There's also been genetic wear. He raised his hands, indicating himself. The point being, humankind couldn't survive a transition back to nature, even if it wanted one, nor the time it would take to build, a new, to build new and egalitarian civilizations. Between our genetic weaknesses, autoimmune diseases, starch diets, immunodeficiencies, mental illnesses, and limited resources, as well as the shifting climate of a scoured planet, the Earth couldn't hold out for another go at us. The path backwards is extinction. I wanted to resist him, of course, to ask him if he was able to think outside the binaries he'd imposed on the thought experiment. Nature, civilization, past, future. But we were disturbed by an uproar from the workstations. A door had opened up in the left wall of the capsule. I hadn't noticed it on walking in. The hackers were cheering as they followed each other through the doorway. Mark winced as I went over to him. I apologized for the disturbance. I wanted to hear more. As I mentioned earlier, this, of course, is an argument that exists even outside of dramatization in philosophy. For example, if we refer to On Decoloniality by Walter D. Minolo and Barbara E. Walsh, we find the following quote. If another world is possible, it cannot be built with the conceptual tools inherited from the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. It cannot be built with the master's tools, as Audre Lorde reminded us a number of years back. For the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. However, Lewis Gordon and Jane Anna Gordon offer a different stance on the same problem. Not only with the master's tools, they argue, slaves have historically done something more provocative with such tools than attempt to dismantle the big house. There are those who used those tools, developed additional ones, and built houses of their own on more or less generous soil. It is our view that the proper response is to follow their lead, transcending rather than dismantling Western ideas through building our own houses of thought. When enough houses are built, the hegemony of the master's house, in fact, mastery itself, will cease to maintain its imperial status. Shelter needn't be the rooms offered by such domination. The second <clears throat> weapon that I discovered and learned, the deeper that I got into speculative fiction, especially for the African writers, for the African writer, is the importance of deconstructing reality. To take another page from decoloniality, it is important to reevaluate the assumptions 
the narratives and structures that determine what reality itself is constituted of in a colonial order. During this re-evaluation, hegemonic authority, such as how modernity organizes the world and constitutes reality, is dismounted and challenged by local knowledges, intuitions, subjectivities, and narratives. And then the third weapon I found was to use speculative fiction to restore, to restore these local knowledges, these alternative wisdoms and knowledge systems that were either erased or warped in the process of conquest, of colonization. To quote from the above scholars, the search of equilibrium and harmony of fundamental concepts in indigenous philosophy from ancient times to today. One only has to listen to one of my fellow attendees, <clears throat> the courageous Nandre Mutuma, who talks about the disastrous disintegration of our spirituality in the mainstream of South African society. How our distance and alienation from our ancestors itself an alternative local knowledge, a way of constituting reality that is as legitimate as modernity, if not more so, since the latter is a threat to the planet, while the former knows on a spiritual, physical, intuitive level that humankind's separation from nature is a lethal illness. That is why it is important to restore these knowledges, speculating to fill in the gaps where they've been warped or erased by the Enlightenment and by colonization. The fourth and last weapon I discovered is invention, to applying new and alternative modes of thinking or philosophical technologies. These could be anything from what I believe to be Nelson Mandela's unmatched humanism to Steve Biko's deceptively simple but highly efficient technology of black consciousness. And as a way of closing, and as a way of also illustrating this point, I will once again refer to a character from my third book, Native Life in the Third Millennium. He's a video game developer who has been commissioned to write and develop a video game that is meant to introduce a philosophy that will make sure that our inevitable transhuman future. This is an assumption that the story takes, that transhumanism is inevitable in our, in our society. And because it is inevitable, it is important to intervene before it's established so that this transhuman future 
can be egalitarian and be something that is not constructed through hierarchy. In order to do this, the video game developer has to infuse the game with Ubuntu, a pre-colonial philosophy or technology that encompasses the idea of human connectedness and community, emphasizing a universal bond between all of us and emphasizing compassion and empathy for others. This world is destructing, the engineer said, looking out of the window. The car approached an intersection and two women crossed, staring into the windscreen over their surgical masks. However, it is not the end. It's also the start of things. The following age will be modulated through Ubuntu, liberating the last of humankind to exist in a hierarchical civilization. The game is a tool. In service of Ubuntu, I asked. He shook his head. No, Ubuntu is instrumental, but our destination is further down the line. His driver led us into a tunnel, and I leaned back because the world darkened. I asked him what the destination was. Humankind's transition into the transhuman, he said. The transhuman cannot exist outside of Ubuntu, of course, which is the antithesis of the colonial order. Horizontal and interconnected, within it, one gains their humanity, their being, through others gaining their humanity, their being, which is needed for the simulation. But getting to the transhuman itself is the destination. The transhuman, I asked. The existence of human consciousness outside human bodies, he said, before he turned back to the window. The tunnel light glinted orange against his profile. It's inevitable. Humankind's conundrum is corporeal. Two things are immutable about us as living, breathing organisms. The first is that we heard, and the second is that we perform our most decisive action, the thinking that germs out into wars and epochs from the pits of our bellies between fear and appetite. Europe lunged on the world from an overabundance of that fear, an imbalance that mangled the zone of life on Earth but the fear itself is endemic to humankind. I listened to him as we drove. The tunnel felt endless. The game is in service of quiet earth philosophy, he said, a credo that anticipates the beginning of the world. His driver led us out of the tunnel. Light flooded in against the console. Quiet Earth philosophy understands that in order to survive, humankind will have to evolve to forfeit corporeal existence and continue on as a simulation of consciousness, hovering over a quiet Earth of transistors, powered through the planet, as is suggested in mainstream transhumanist literature. The cause for the transition isn't known. Earth could be uninhabitable, or it could be evolution. In the meantime, quiet earth philosophy anticipates the event as inevitable. 
It aims to both safeguard humankind's transition into the transhuman and to install an egalitarian code in how we form institutions in the transhuman future. Through accelerating Ubuntu, I asked, that and further, human consciousness is trammeled inside the human organism, he said. Liberated, it's expected to thrive, but not that alone. It will also relieve the planet of our bodies, whose fears and appetites have grown into a malignant force of nature. That's the germ of quiet earth philosophy. If the idea is seeded now, we believe, it will flower on its own amongst post-human philosophers in three centuries under a different name and will culminate in a movement to re-host human consciousness inside synthetic brain tissue, safeguarding a second transition, the return of the reconfigured living, breathing organism. Three centuries, I asked, four consecutive lifetimes. It isn't that long. Regardless, how is it possible to tell, I asked him, even with the wound He went silent. <clears throat> humankind has never in cured impairments endemic to humankind, he said. Instead, it's learned to live around them, evolving in that manner. I didn't disagree. It was an obstacle I'd encountered in making the game. I'd had to think past the world he meant, the one we shared, the order that had broken us and our parents. In the beginning, I created one force of living organism versus another force of living organism and placed them in conflict across centuries, tracking the evolution of the organism as a whole. It took 16 months of development for me to notice the error I'd built into the premise. I'd started to see humankind as a species of monsters. I'd moved inward, avoiding crowds, and had lost the motivation I needed to live. I would wake up from dreams in which I saw us for what we were, patterns of bones suspended inside loose mounds of flesh, contaminants running restless over the Earth's crust, tanging the marrow of fellow mammals and suffocating the planet inside a carapace of plastic. My drinking picked up again and I couldn't write. I stopped coding and Mithlali, my wife and I fought over having children. It was for the same reason I'd hidden the game from her. I went back to it and realized the mistake I'd made was using the world I knew. I'd polluted it with humankind. I'd needed to model new variations. I'd needed to understand that black freedom was inconceivable in this reality. And as such, to imagine it was to imagine the end of the world. And once I reached that point in my thinking and my writing and began to consider the viability of the end of the world, 
um, an idea that first came to me somewhat pessimistically. I began to see opportunity in it afterwards. The world ending is in fact the beginning of the world as we know it. And I've come to believe that amongst many pre-colonial or black technologies, Ubuntu perhaps is the one that one day we might find an efficient way of tapping into. And in doing so, it is quite possible that it might in the future um, intervene, you know, on behalf of all of us as humankind. And to be able to entertain those ideas, to dramatize them, to, to think, to find other philosophers and to compile them into works that both entertain, um, provoke thought, but also do not let go of sight of the importance of the human being and the human being's connection to nature is what I would say defines my uh, relationship with speculative fiction in the end. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotheque.